We all think about what we eat. We plan our meals or count carbs or do any number of other things when it comes to what we put in our bodies. But do you ever think about the flavor of what you consume? Sure you do. What we eat or drink either tastes good or it doesn't. In fact, taste is the number one consideration in what we consume. Yet, there's more to it than just like or dislike. And there's even a whole industry dedicated to it. Flavor is memory. Flavor is feeling. Flavor is science. Flavor is art. Flavor is Fona. Welcome to Fona's Flavor University podcast, where we explore the science, artistry, and industry behind flavor. Today's guest was our first guest on our podcast. We welcome back Dr. Robert Sobel, Fono's Vice President of Research and Innovation. Hey, Bob, how's it going? Hey, how's it going, Cor? Good, good. Bob, we're here today to talk about something that's really interesting for me and I'm sure is on the minds of a lot of people. I mean, this topic is in your home, it's on your wrist, it's in your car, you can't avoid it. Today's topic, if you haven't guessed already, is artificial intelligence, or AI as we're probably going to refer to it more predominantly. We're going to talk about it on the whole as far as it is concerned in the world, and then we're going to get more specific when we talk about AI in the flavor industry. So as I said, Bob is back today to talk to us about this. So Bob, if you wouldn't mind going through your introduction again for us and just tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah, thanks, Corey, and thanks for having me back on the program. So my name is Bob Sobel. I lead FONA's Research and Innovation Program. We look at a whole host of different short, midterm, and even long-term research programs that are related specifically to the flavor industry and looking at new ways of delivering technologies in this space. My background is in chemistry, came up as a physical organic chemist by training, but then also do a lot in the area of innovation and innovation management. So innovation is very encompassing, as we've discussed on this podcast. There's innovation in all types of flavors. There's innovation in the regulatory sense. There's innovation, obviously, in the science sense. So if we're going to get into innovation and artificial intelligence, obviously, that's kind of cutting edge, almost bleeding edge kind of technology. How does artificial intelligence fall under your umbrella? Well, I think when you look at what specifically my team does and how we would use artificial intelligence it's really looking at where AI or machine learning is really being used. And it's really being used to handle large quantities of data, things where you have a lot of complexity. What I tell a lot of people is that AI itself is really to either look for patterns or to have a machine find patterns for you that you may not be able to see visually or to be able to forecast or to predict based upon the data that's being presented to the machine. So how does that relate to flavors? Flavors are complex creatures. I think I talked a little bit about that in in the first episode. And definitely, it's a big theme throughout all the Flavor University programs is that flavors themselves are very, very complex. And when you have a complex system, it's just this really nice merging of technologies. Take the complexity of a flavor, take the need for computer processing power to find patterns or to be able to predict different flavor trends based upon the composition of a flavor, and and you get the best of both worlds uh, when you put those two together. Now, this isn't something that really could have been realized even maybe 15 years ago, just because of the demands that you have. So AI, machine learning, there's been a lot that has been known about what the software requirements were, the programming requirements. I mean, that is, is old technology. I mean, we knew how to do machine learning and AI back in the 80s and even in some parts of the 70s. It's just that we didn't have the computing power back then. I think back to some of the, even the experiments that I've done in my career where 15 years ago, 
to characterize a molecule to understand how it may interact with another molecule to do some sort of um, a reaction prediction would take a few days of processing power on a normal lab PC, something that you'd have on your have access to. Power and, and processing power specifically has increased significantly. Um, if you look at Moore's law, you kind of see where that's going. To, today, you can have very, very powerful computers that have the ability to crunch large quantities of data relatively fast. So you, you don't have to wait that period of time. But once again, it's all about forecasting. It's all about finding patterns. Now, you mentioned processing power. And I know what we've done here at Fona is we actually picked up a supercomputer, not to put too fine a point on it or give it such a name, but I know it's a rather large machine itself, but it doesn't, it's nowhere near the size of the original computers that took up, you know, total rooms. Is that computer used heavily for our AI? Yes, it is actually. And the only limiting factor for that kind of personal supercomputer is the storage space. So the quantity of data that you're analyzing, you've got to be able to store that. And at some point, um, it just makes more sense to do cloud storage and cloud computing, um, which is very, very popular now. So someone that's trying to get into the AI game, whether you're working in the flavor space or you're trying to crunch a bunch of numbers from the stock market, so you want to make the best bet on what stocks to buy um, and forecast that, you can do cloud computing with that. And it's very fast. And regardless of the processing power, uh, it really comes down to the storage and how much you store. Yeah, I have a lot of people who come to me and ask me, you know, I have all these pictures. What do I do with these pictures? And that's the first thing we do is we tell them, you know, look up a cloud source for, you know, backing up and taking care of that kind of stuff. Because, you know, backups of backups is never a bad idea. Right, right. So why don't we, let, let's talk about what I need to know about artificial intelligence. What is specific to artificial intelligence? What makes a machine intelligent? So I think... To understand that, you need to kind of think about what intelligence is. And intelligence, from the classical sense, if we look maybe 100 or so years ago, we had this thing called the intelligence quotient. Uh, and really, it was a measure of one's ability to uh, perform a series of types of intelligence questions, specifically around like math and, and language. But what we found, and actually this this has kind of come out in, in the 80s, is this concept of multiple intelligence theory. And I promise you, we're going to talk about computers, but once again, kind of looking at the human element and then projecting that onto a computer, because it really, that's what we're doing. And so when you look at things like multiple intelligence theory, it really looks at not just having one fixed number, like I have an IQ of 150 or something, you know which doesn't really tell you a whole lot, as opposed to being able to break down intelligence into a couple of core spaces. So you can look at things like interpersonal, intrapersonal, you know, logical or mathematical, or, or something along the lines of linguistics um, intelligence or artistic intelligence. And so people are not just subjected just to this one quotient, it's really looking at how is the person in terms of all these different types of intelligences. Okay, so great. So now we're talking about people, but the reason why I bring that up is because when you look at multiple intelligence theory, you can then apply that to a computer and say, okay, a computer has the ability to do mathematical things. And so if that's the type of intelligence you're defining for the computer, then it's probably really, really good at that. If you wanted to look at a computer from an artistic sense, 
Chances are it's not going to have that. At least today it's not. We haven't reached this thing they call the singularity, um, which is where um, you have like consciousness realized in silico on a computer. So when we think about kind of where we're at in human history of machine learning and artificial intelligence, we're really kind of at the, the starting point. We're probably 200, maybe 300 years away from having a, a system that fully has the ability to um, have its own conscious thoughts, if you will. So that's the, that's the big story is it's really trying to understand, you know, these very basic intelligences or ways to artificially project that onto a computer. So these computers are looking specifically at, they're looking at figures, they're looking at feedback and hard numbers and things like that. I mean, we even mentioned in our opening about artistry and feeling, these computers can't do that. Correct. So do we use them to tell us, you know, how people are reacting to a certain flavor or what emotion it makes them feel? So that is an amazing question because what we can do, even though they can't express that on their own, they need to learn or they need to be trained. And so you can train a computer to understand what, say, for instance, we're talking about a, a strawberry flavor. We can train a computer that a series of inputs relates to a strawberry or a strawberry flavor. You can use your input as, say, like an electronic nose, or you can use a series of descriptive terms, or you can just use straight flavor chemical information and put that in and tell the computer that, hey, that's a strawberry. And then in the future, you can present it an unknown. And if it has learned what a strawberry is, it can tell you that unknown is either a strawberry or it's not a strawberry, or it can tell you a certain percentage of what it thinks that that might be. A it's 75% strawberry. And so it requires, like I said, some form of training or training set. Right. So using past data, past information to make estimated guesses as to what, you know, somebody could be thinking, feeling, tasting, so on and right. so forth. Right. But once again, it's only as good as what it has been trained for. Right. Mm -hmm. So if it's only as good as what it's been trained for, what should food scientists know about AI? What should they be looking for in order to either A, train it properly or choose the right AI for them? Well, I, th I think a lot of it goes through to how can AI make your job easier? whether it's looking at if you're if you're a food scientist and you're trying to understand I'm doing product development and i want to know basic formulations to make a donut or a cookie you can use ai to help you do that in fact there are ais out there right now that that do just that that can give you formulations or recipe starters you can then create that product you can give the AI feedback on how that product turned out. The beauty of that is it, it's learning along the way. I've heard some computer scientists say it's kind of like building an airplane while you're flying it. That's the beauty of uh, AI and machine learning is that as long as you're giving consistent data to the system and you do that over the time period that you're using it, it can continually learn and build a better model as it goes along the way. So essentially what we're doing as we get into more sophisticated forms of machine learning or even like deep, deep machine learning is that you're, you're giving the software the ability to kind of write its own code so that it can continually learn. So it's growing. Yes, it's growing. Absolutely. In fact, probably one of the best examples I can think of that I've seen of that happening is, and everyone might be able to relate to this. So maybe in the early days of like Google Translate, you may have used that 
that app maybe 10 years ago. And it was, it was pretty good back then. I mean, I was super impressed with, with that app, but it has grown so much over time to today. You know, you, you can almost carry on a very nice conversation with somebody in a totally different language just by having your phone there. And it's that whole natural language processing algorithm that just continues to grow and get more more efficient at what it does while also getting more and more information from from users of that software. So I think with all this new AI that's coming out, you know, you even said it's taking parts of your job, doing them for you, making them easier for you to perform. So in my case, we have an email scanner that basically looks through the email, finds bad emails and and spam and whatnot and kicks them out. And as people tell the scanner, you know, what's good and what's bad, it starts to learn, okay, I should let this Mm -hmm. through. I should push this out. It's essentially making people either complacent or it's making people hyper aware. In our, in our case, it's, it's more hyper aware in our business over at Pona. Um, More people are like, what is this? I don't know what this is. So, and we've trained them that way, which is wonderful. Do you think that AI is, is replacing certain aspects of flavor creation? And if so, what, what aspects are those? So I think if you look at the flavor industry as a whole and certain areas of where AI is, is making an impact, I think a lot of it, I mean, we can talk about marketing, you know, how do you manage all the data? I mean, if you look at how much data is generated just on the internet alone every day, it's like 2.5 quintillion bytes of information. And that's a, that's a huge number, like 10 to the 18 bytes of information. And so how would you manage that? How would you be able to surf through all of that information and make meaning out of it? 10, 15 years ago, we would just use algorithms to do that type of work. Nowadays, we're using neural networks, deep machine learning to be able to make sense out of all those patterns to be able to go through that. So how does that help you know, someone working on flavors? Well, if you're trying to find a flavor trend, there's a lot of information out there on flavor. And it really comes down to um, being able to use an algorithm that can surf through all of this information and tease out the patterns. You know, what is up and coming? What do we see as a new flavor trend in this market? You know, and it's not that these systems are perfect. I don't want to give that impression. There are still faults in them, but they help you realize patterns that you would not be able to see on your own, especially being able to take all of that information and being able to process. And that's just from a marketing standpoint. Um, you know, if you look at what is happening in the world of just biology, for instance, and, and biochemistry with uh, chemioinformatics, you know, and trying to do just untargeted approaches to understand how different biomes exist and, and all that, and take that same concept and, and move it over to the flavor space where it's like an untargeted approach to understand what is driving a flavor profile in a certain product or maybe to do discovery of new ingredients. There's a lot of work that's being done at the Ohio State University with Devin Peterson's group uh, at the Flavor Research Education Center and also out at the University of Minnesota with Professor Gary Renex's group where they're doing just that with flavor omics and they're able to look at natural products and use big data crunching techniques to find the patterns or to find the individual components that might be creating this hierarchy of flavor perception response in humans, um, stuff you would never be able to do without the advent of things like machine learning and, and higher order statistical analysis. So these are all established concepts of, of AI, things that people kind of know about them. And I'm actually really glad to hear that, you know, we're, we're hundreds of years off from a computer having 
full autonomy and consciousness and whatnot. I'm very glad the TI 8000 or whatever it is, isn't going to become busting <laughs> through my door anytime soon. Uh, but that being said, I mean, what about AI do people not know? I mean, I have a lot of misconceptions, I'm sure. But what kind of AI is out there that I should know and don't know about? So I think AI itself has woven itself into every little aspect of our lives. You know, I think about getting a phone call from a computer telling me that there might have been some sort of fraud charge on my on my credit card, you know. And, and what's going on there is that they look at your buying habits and when they see something that's outside of that normal pattern, it alerts them. So it's, it's a time saver. It's also very helpful to identify that, hey, maybe somebody's using your, your personal information to buy stuff. I think about some of the things just like navigating around, you know, GPS, that's a form of artificial intelligence. You know, it has to be able to navigate within a space and be able to get you from point A to point B and can handle a lot of different uh, data to help you get there and make decisions for you along the way. I mean, if you look at some of the GPS apps that are out there, they get real-time traffic data and they're able to on the fly say, you know what, this route I gave you is probably not going to be the most efficient. Let me figure out how to get you there faster and get you around traffic. Um, so that's another form. If we bring a little bit more um, detailed into the food, the food place uh, or the food space, uh, you know, I mean, if you've maybe not recently because of the pandemic, but things are opening up. Uh, but before, uh, you know, maybe check out that Coke freestyle machine. And what it's doing is it's looking at how you're dispensing soda. You know, are you dispensing just straight Diet Coke? Or are you going to put a couple different flavors together uh, with that? Maybe Diet Coke with, I don't know, a peach, you know. Uh, and so what they do is they look for the patterns in that. And then that gives them the marketing support and data to then launch a new, a new product out there. So if you look at like Cherry Sprite, you know, or the launch of the Peach Cola, you know, or the Peach Coke, you know, those are driven by understanding the patterns that exist within things like that freestyle machine. Um, even a little bit closer to the flavor space, you can look at companies like Analytical Flavor System. Uh, it's a very interesting company in that they do a lot with data science and they have an amazing app called Gastrograph that helps them predict flavor trends and they can give this app out to you know, whatever number of consumers and get feedback on, on products that can also then learn and then the developer at the bench can go ahead and put their input and details in on a product that they're tasting and get predictions on where that product should go in terms of flavor development. I really need the freestyle machine to separate out and start producing for me the taste of bottled Coca-Cola versus fountain Coca-Cola because I don't know if maybe it's just me. I don't know if it's the water that they put in it, but I really like them for them to know that. Also, we need to get AI working on pizza crusts. And I say that because there are actually studies on the flavor of different pizza crusts and why they taste so good. And people are equating it to the water that the pizza crust is made from. So I think it's somewhere in New York. I'm pretty sure it's uh, upstate New York. Their pizza crust, although it may be a pizza hut or, you know, a Papa Gino's or Papa Joe's rather or whatever you want to call it. I'm naming all the different papas that I know. <laughs> Their pizza crust will all taste different, even though they're a chain due to the water that is, they're made with. Um, so yeah, if we could bottle all that up into one of those, you know, machines to figure that out so we can get a consistency, I'd like that. 
But that's that's a long way to say that those are all great things that people should know that these different AIs are working for them to actually create these these great flavors. So with that being said, if they're working for them, there's got to be drawbacks and challenges to having AI involved in the flavor industry. Can you speak to those? What would what those look like? So I think some of the challenges, uh, and, and this is something that has always plagued AI and machine learning, uh, has really been it being oversold in what it can do. And that can cause a lot of problems for emerging technologies. And that's one of the things that we've seen with data science over the years is you get to a point where it's, oh, this is the next greatest thing. It's, it's going to be amazing. And then it underperforms and then it loses funding or it loses a lot of development work, kind of goes into an AI winter. And then you can into an AI spring and things start to, to happen again. And that's kind of really what, where we're at today is we're in that reemergence of applying this and, and not today, but over the last seven years or so, we've seen a big, a big catch up in our space of, of using this technology. But as systems are more complex, just like flavors, the technology has to be able to navigate that complexity. And along with that, it takes a lot of time uh, to do some of the initial ground uh, work uh, on developing the algorithms. Uh, so you do see a lot of players in this space looking for easy ways of, of using AI in terms of access to data. So in general, the food industry itself has not had a lot of well-organized data, unlike other industries, you know, like the medical industry or you know, financial industry. Um, where you see these different types of um, processing being used. But we're catching up. And a lot of that is either looking at ways of filtering old data so it's usable, or going through and creating and generating new data so that you can use that for predictions uh, or forecasting. But that's a big piece of it. And I should have said that at the beginning, it does demand well-organized, well-structured data to be useful and implemented. And that's just something that the food industry as a whole really hasn't had a lot of. And so it's being able to mine that. And is it really just the organized data that drives splurges or surges rather in, in AI creation or in AI development? I think part of it is also competing industries, you know, pharmaceutical industry, financial industry, medical industry. You see a big surge of data scientists working in those industries specifically. And now we're starting, like I said, to see some of those folks moving over into the food space to really help develop that technology in this space. And, and that's the other thing. There's, I wouldn't say a huge shortage of data scientists, but man, they're really, really hard to find and really hard to find moving into the food space. Where do we find those scientists? Do we have to create them? Do we have to start pushing more kids towards STEM? I think so. And in fact, you, you kind of see that right now where there's this big push for learning how to code at, a, at an early age. I think back to when I was in school and I sat in front of a TRS-80. And I know maybe some of you listening to this podcast may like laugh at that. Um, and learning how to, how to have my name go across the whole screen by typing uh, a few simple lines of code in basic um, programming language, um, which I don't even think people may even use anymore. And then I look at my daughters uh, and my, my oldest, who is in high school, is, is learning how to program in Python. And that's something I 
did a little bit of computer programming in high school, but nothing to the level that she's that she's doing. You know, and the access to equipment, to computers, whether it's at school or at home for for students, uh, is pretty amazing. And the accessibility is is going to be a big driver. So, we do need data scientists, though. So, learning that coding and and learning yeah. those machines is obviously in in high demand. What kind of machines are we using to you know, say day to day in our lab to process some of this information or to create some of this information for us? So I would say a lot of the PCs that pull information off of the instrumental side are going to be much more on the processing power. You know, you're going to see multiple video boards doing most of the data crunching for you. Uh, the amount of data that's being generated per file is amazing. In some cases, it can be a gigabyte of information. You know, if you're building a big model in some of the bioinformatics softwares or some of the chemometric softwares, you know, you have to be able to handle data files that are enormous and lots of those data files, you know, so we're not talking like just running with 10 or 20 gigabyte, one, one gigabyte files. We're talking a thousand files, each one that could contain a gig, a gig of information. And so at that point you're saying, okay, well, how do I manage that? You know, you, you know, Obviously, you need a lot of storage and you need to be, and this is, this becomes more technical conundrum that you have with AI and being able to read all that information and do all the number crunching. There's ways of filtering the data and normalizing the data so that it can be a little bit more efficient when it's being um, accessed. But that's where, where some of the challenges come in. But definitely, uh, the computer power uh, has to be greater. Um, I think about this one piece of equipment that we have in our lab that does high resolution accurate mass for macromolecules. And the software that it runs, the PC that we have running it looks like a mini fridge. Just to be able to do structural elucidation takes a significant amount of time for this uh, PC to do that. You know, we're not talking like, oh, hit a button and there's my answer. It's hit a button and you're going to wait maybe five, 10 minutes to get some hits to come back from this database. Now, these AI, these machines that we're using, they obviously can't replace a real person. I mean, the, the feedback from a person is instantaneous. It's, you know, it's, it's more direct in, in a sense. Do you guys have any machines that, or any AI rather, that are capable of giving you faster feedback? Because I know we've been talking about like, you know, terabytes of data here, probably more than that. Yeah. Is there anything that you can use that kind of, so for example, we have sensory panels that you can look at a piece of paper and somebody said, no, I didn't like that because of A. Do we have a machine that can do it that quickly? So we have an instrument that can do it pretty fast and it's not a new technology. And by new, I mean, it's been available for probably the last 20 years, but the technology, so we, what we're talking about here is electronic sensing or electronic nose or electronic tongue technology. I'll talk more about electronic nose because I think for me, it's, um, it's very interesting. And it's not so much about the instrument because what it's doing is it's just getting the data from, from the sample. It can get that data from the sample in a very fast amount of time. Uh, per sample, you could get data in about a minute. Okay. So that's just getting, you know, it's artificially sniffing something. You know, it takes a minute to do that. On the processing side, because the data that it's pulling is not as large, big quantities, and because we're not using something like a deep machine learning algorithm, we're using something more like principal component analysis, you can get data visualization, uh, like projection methods, visualization of data 
in seconds. So it's very, very fast. And, you know, you, what you do typically with those systems is you run them alongside human sensory panels in the beginning to gain a level of confidence that they're able to mimic what the panel is going to do. And when you get a certain level of confidence, then you can start to wade out into the water a little bit more and let it um, make some predictions for you. So if these machines are 20 years old, as you're saying, what's the future? What's on the, what's on the yeah. edge here? So, so the technology itself is, is right around 20 years. It's probably a little bit older than that. The processing power, when I first started using Eno's technology back in the early 2000s, uh, the processing power was, was okay. And there has been a lot that has been done to get a more standardized signal, more consistent signal from the Eno's technology. Where's the, where's the future going for that technology? I would like to think that someday that technology is going to be able to smell something like a can of soda or a cup of coffee and be able to replicate that in a flavor form, you know, almost, almost like in, in Star Trek where, you know, you can ask it to, you know, create a, a Earl Grey tea for you, you know. Food synthesizer. Yeah, nice. Absolutely. So I, I do think, and that is going to be a reality. Not today, but that is in the works. There are companies right now that are making 3D, and that's the beauty of innovation. You look at these component technologies and put them together. So you got some guy over here that's got e-tongue technology and working really well with that. You've got another outfit over here that it's a European group that that's making food 3D printing technology. They can 3D print hamburgers, you know, and that technology is starting to be developed and then kind of merge that concept together. It might be limited at first in what it can create, but it's definitely going to be somewhere that we're we're going to see someday, and hopefully in our lives we'll be able to see that. I know you can see 3D food printing right now. You know, there's outside of that, there's robotic uh, systems that are capable of, of just manufacturing food in an autonomous restaurants, building houses and so on yeah. for cheap labor or no labor. You know, yeah. so if that's on the forefront, what are you excited for? What's something you're looking for to either within the industry in your day to day or just you know outside? So, so I, I think when it, when it comes to the flavor space, one of the things that I'm really interested in is understanding because human smell, human taste is very, very um, sophisticated. And it's really not well understood even how our sense of smell works. You know, for instance, I was reading a, a journal article a few years ago about fishy aroma, the, the oxidized note that comes off of um, omega-3s, you know, uh, after they start to go rancid. And it turns out that it's actually just not one chemical uh, that makes the fishy aroma. It's actually the combination of two chemicals uh, that when these two chemicals come together uh, and you smell them, it smells like rotten fish, you know? And so it got me thinking, man, like when, when I think of how a strawberry flavor is put together, or I think of some other flavor being put together, kind of work with this fixed slate of different ingredients that were like, yes, this is what makes a strawberry flavor. But then when you look at what's creating that off note, that fishy aroma, the two compounds that come together, like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense why I'm getting the fishy aroma out of that. And so that for me is very interesting because what I want to be able to do with machine learning is I want to understand what new compounds could be combined to create a strawberry flavor that you would never think about doing. You know, and that's the beauty and that's the sophistication of what machine learning does for us is it presents us with those patterns that we don't typically think about or see, the, the things that are not obvious. That, oh, hey, I could 
maybe mix a little bit of racetone with some ethyl butyrate. I apologize for any flavor chemists listening. And, and there you go. I've got a new type of peppermint, you know, flavor profile. So for those who are not flavor chemists like myself, what, what's the faux pas you just made? Um, basically, a, a peppermint flavor is much more complex than just two ingredients coming together. And then once again, like raspberry or tone, raspberry ketone, you know, I need typically in raspberry flavor, you know, but it might be something that you could mix with some other compound to create a peppermint flavor. You just don't know it. And I think that those patterns to me are very, very interesting because I think that's going to lead us into a, a new area of flavor development. Will it revolutionize the flavor industry? I don't know, but I think it's very, very interesting to be able to look at new ways of doing blends of compounds that we didn't think when you put them together, would create that. I think it's also something that, because we don't understand exactly how the nose operates, to be able to find patterns that way is much more efficient than just doing the empirical trial and error at the benchtop. Are there any recent examples of AI-created flavors that you've kind of come across or that they've developed? So I can give, an, I can give a direct example, and this is something that I worked on. can't tell you all the people involved because customers and stuff. But I, uh, about 12 years ago, was tasked with developing a cooling flavor. And so have a cooling sensation. This was going to go into a confection. And I worked alongside a, a flavor chemist. And we, we used a neural network to do this work. So what we did is we went and we grabbed all of the different cooling flavors that we knew of in our formulary. And we went to descriptive analysis with them. And so from descriptive analysis, we had, we basically had the descriptive terms or the reference items and the quantity or the intensity value for those. That's how descriptive analysis works is that you have a descriptive term and alongside the descriptive term, you have some sort of quantity or intensity value. So if you had something that was like a cooling sensation or a cooling descriptive term, and it was a 10, that meant that it was really super cooling. If you had something that was rated at a one, it's going to be limited in cooling. And so what we did is we took all of these different flavor formulas and we put them into the neural network as a series of inputs. And then the output of that, the training piece was that this formula here from descriptive analysis rated at a five, this formula here, and it was a scale of one to 15 that we were using. And so you had this whole grid of inputs related to an output of cooling. And then what we did is we started to do query sets where we forced the system to give us something that was 15. And then we started to fill in some of the, the chemical components or the, the ingredients that went into that. And then the AI started predicting the concentrations of the other ingredients to get us to be at 15. And one of the things that we learned from that is that there were a certain subset of botanical extracts that on their own do not have a cooling sensation, but holy cow, when you put them together with other components in this series, it drove the cooling scores all the way to 15, the most intense cooling we ever had. Never would have thought of using those ingredients in a million years. The flavor chemist I was working with was totally blown away. And so that, that was one of the early successes that I had using. Yeah. And the cool thing is we went, we made that formula. We went to the descriptive analysis panel and sure enough, the scores were like right up there at 15 for a cooling sensation. So that's, that's one of my early experiences with AI and, and doing flavor formulation. So I'm going to break away from the analytical side of artificial intelligence and kind of go into more of the sensory. Can you talk to me about that? 
Yeah. So, and this is like probably one of those other areas that you'll see this type of technology really innovating is going to be in the area of sensory and consumer science. Um, I think as we start to, um, and companies have already started to do that, I kind of hinted that analytical flavor systems does this, Mintel does this for the marketing data. But I think one of the big challenges you have with sensory is that it's, it's specifically like in descriptive analysis or even like consumer testing, it's like a fixed moment in time. Like you get your data and it represents what happened in that moment in time. And then you make some pretty big decisions on that. So whether it's consumer preference at that moment in time, and then you run to the market if, if it's good information. The beauty of taking something like machine learning and dovetailing it together with sensory science is that it really enables you to not have this fixed point or this kind of static point. It can continue to grow as you feed it more information of consumer trends, you know, and as long as you have access to that data and you can make it well organized, you can constantly update that and compare it to that moment in time to understand how is that going to work out? How is that product going to work out? You know, and if you had enough data, you could predict how that product would work out a few weeks, you know, a month, or you could check in on that product a year in the marketplace to say, hey, where's this going? You know, is it still projected to be a winner or is it possibly, you know, moving into a, a, an area where you may want to sunset that product? So I think that's going to be another big area. So let's wrap this up a little bit. Usually we end with some kind of takeaways. What are some key points, some bullet points you'd like to leave the listeners with for this AI? Well, I think the first thing is don't fear it. Uh, we're, we're not going to have uh, HAL, the HAL 2000, I think, at opening the pod bay door for you. Um, so I, I don't think you have to worry about that. It's still in its infancy. I think anytime you do work with machine learning, uh, whether it's, you know, developing a playlist or watching something on, on a streaming service, it requires feedback. And that's something that you're going to have to make sure that you do. Understand that it really is designed for the patterns, to show you patterns or to help you forecast. Uh, th those are the two big things that it can do today. And I think the, the, the other item is just to understand that it also has limitations and to be a little bit more thought out, I guess, if somebody's trying to oversell the technology to you, that it can do a lot. It's very powerful, but it does have its own limitations. Right. So since we've already talked to you once before about your favorites, your dislikes, your likes, and your memories and whatnot, we're going to tailor this a little bit more to AI. So the first question I'm going to ask is, what is the most frequently used AI in your house? It's probably my Google Home. And I just keep on learning more and more about it. It's a little weird in that I think sometimes, and this is me projecting a personality on it, um, that it's listening to, to me and my family. But it's super useful. It learns the trends on kind of how we keep the home thermostat. And it updates itself there. Uh, it tells me how my ride to work is going to be every morning. It kind of learns that information. Uh, and yeah, so that's probably the one that I use the most. So on that topic of it's always listening, what's the weirdest interaction you've had with an AI? That's a great question. I think probably one of the, okay, so one of the best experiences that I've had is I was on a road trip once and there was a major accident, horrible accident. And 
it would have taken me six hours more to get to where I was going. And my GPS, because it had the real-time tracking, actually routed me around this whole mess up that was on the, the interstate. I will tell you that my Google Home occasionally talks, which is kind of creepy. I'm trying to think the other day, it was maybe like three in the morning and it said something like, what did you say? And <laughs> that's a little, uh, little unnerving at three in the morning. Yeah, so. it's a lot worse than yeah. those, you know, dolls that talk going off at three in the morning. Yes. Love me, talk to me, <laughs> right? All right, well, thank you so much, Bob, for joining us today. That's it for Fona's Flavor University podcast. I'm Corey Doucette. And again, I'd like to thank our special guest, Dr. Robert Sobel. Uh, thanks again for listening. And until next time, the flavor of Fona is the flavor of life. So go out and taste it. <laughs>